Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast explores the world to create an oral history of today's art and culture. Today, we take you to Miami, Florida, for a look behind the scenes at Dimensions Variable, a new space for contemporary art. Miami-based cultural producers have come together to lead this arts initiative. Also known as DV, Dimensions Variable provides studios, curates exhibitions, and produces events, publications, and special projects to support challenging and experimental art practices in Miami. Francis Trombley and Leighton Rodriguez Casanova co-founded the original Dimensions Variable in 2009. In the decade that followed, DV activated a storefront in the design district, a downtown warehouse, and a college art gallery before taking up residence in a single-story building that recently housed an automobile transmission repair shop on West 79th Street in Little Haiti. The resurgent Dimensions Variable has more breathing room than ever. 4,500 square feet divided into three exhibition spaces, an archive room, and five artist studios connected by a wide central walkway. Born in Cuba, artist co-founder Leighton Rodriguez Casanova introduces us to the organic evolution of Dimensions Variable and his own practice of working with ready-mates. You are one of the co-founders of the original Dimensions Variable. Yes. We founded Dimensions Variable in 2009. It was Francis and I with some uh, studio mates. Let's talk about what Dimensions Variable means because some of our listeners are not artists or curators. Let's open that word up. Why Dimensions Variable is the name of a space? Well, Dimensions Variable is a term used to describe sculpture and installation work that doesn't have fixed dimensions. The work evolves depending on the space or it has so many components that it's kind of hard to put a fixed dimension on it. The first time we decided to do something using that, obviously we use it to describe a lot of our work, but we actually started a blog that was going to be focused on the visuals. It was going to be visuals of work that we were looking at without text, without any kind of information. It was just, this is the work, this is the artist, that's it. And so we called it Dimensions Variable. And I think a year later, we decided to start doing these projects and we were like, well, this is a perfect name to use. I love it, of course. <laughs> I think it's appropriate considering every space you've been in has different dimensions. It keeps changing, yeah. And this one is a very expansive idea you have this time with a real yeah. group of go-getters, I would yeah. call them. Yeah. They all come from, at some point or another, being part of some collective or running like their own space, so they kind of have an idea. They have a sense of responsibility yeah. to the whole. Yeah, yeah, and what it takes. And since we started Dimensions Variable, Francis and I have modeled it around the fact that it would sustain our practices in some way or another. And that was the motivating part for us. It was like, well, do we want to work really, really hard to make more money to pay rent? Or do we want to work really, really hard 
to create a place where we work really hard in support of our like colleagues and our fellow artists and like helping them do great stuff at the same time helping ourselves and creating a kind of community artist as curator and artist as community supporter advocate for other artists not just focused on your own practice that sense of generosity is something that we think is important and it made sense because in a way we had just had our daughter when we opened dv so we were also like well we're not going to be in the community as much why don't we bring the community to us while at the same time helping the community so it became this kind of ecosystem for us and i kind of get a sense of this generosity sort of creates relationships and that kind of comes back to you in some way or another and I think it's important for artists to start, sort of come together in an independent way and I feel like that independent spirit that we all so much respect in like music and like film and like all these things that we look at I think we need to keep alive within our own like community. Let's describe the context. Why did you choose this part of town? We're here because after months and months of trying to find a place that we could stretch out and have a bigger space, and it it worked. So if we're looking at your space, it's more of a drafting room in a way. Do you fabricate in the space as well? What happens in my space is I don't really fabricate much. I find things that exist in the world, and I place, and I arrange. Um, And I know I want to use certain things, and I use certain things in some works, and then I use them in other works. So the process of basically playing off the materials and responding to marks in the material, responding to shapes in the material, and seeing where that leads. What else it might be saying? Yeah, yeah. And seeing where the composition leads, in a way. But the material tells me kind of what to do. We see some frames, we see a door, a mirror... Yeah, a lattice? They're all surfaces, though, in a way, in real basic terms for me. Like, all the planes are colors, and they're strokes, they're marks, they're shapes, and um, the glass is even a, a tint. I like building these compositions with these shapes and strokes and planes, and, but I don't really repaint them or add any kind of, you know, I just respond to them as they are. So this is something interesting that I hope will evolve into something. It's a faux granite countertop, which I'm really interested in the faux surfaces of materials. And then this jagged shape is something that I, I just like the innocence of it. It seems very, like, spontaneous. From Miami, artist co-founder Francis Trombley elaborates on how DV builds on relationships. An artist and community activist Trompley has a vision for what this space can become. I grew up in Miami, from here, I was born here. I work with textiles. I mostly weave, a little embroidery, crochet. Well, what I'm interested in that is belied by your quiet voice (laughs) is your strength as a conceiver of space and an advocate for artists as curator. You made a statement, you wrote a declaration that you sent out to the world a few months ago about declaring the importance of this community that you're part of. Yes, we did. (laughs) For us, being a part of a community, creating space where artists can work and engage and respond and organize together 
is really essential, and we're losing a lot of that these days. You've made a statement about the viability of being an artist and a curator, mm -hmm. and the hybrid practice. Yeah. Well, so where does that come from? I guess it's a necessity. It's our need for survival. And in a way for us to survive, we are creating a network. And the network has many layers. And it's the layering of making and receiving and giving and just existing together. The particular group that you've invited to be your collaborators, tell me what led you to them. We had a lot of conversations with a lot of people, and this core group, they inspire us. So each one of them has their own strengths. They're really talented, but not only being talented and responsible, they are dedicated and kind. <laughs> so it was sort of a group that we felt like would just give and receive and also get what we're trying to do. This is a space that involves everyone. It's an open space. So when you walk in, I mean, the idea is for if a visitor comes in that each particular artist doesn't just take the visitor straight to their studio. That's not what our space is about. We want for people to come in and the artists to engage with the concept of this space as a whole. So it's not just the insular and the self. It's more than that. So there will be exhibitions. There will be opportunities for people to visit individual studios right. and engage in multiple conversations when they come here. Right. What right. other vision do you have for how the space will be activated? Sometimes I do teaching, so hopefully we'll have some kids programming. It's really important for us to include children as part of the community here. And uh, we want to have a little shop where we can bring funding in from all different directions. I think that's what's great about this place is that there are a lot of possibilities. Inside DV, we meet the co-founders' newest collaborators, three artists, and a visual arts archivist. Each member of the DV team has an individual workspace. Born in Iceland, Magnus Sigurdsson now calls Miami home. He's known for exploring esoteric topics and exposing the comic side of stereotypes. In more than a few projects, he reveals unexpected connections between Iceland and his adopted city, often proclaiming that his birth country is the northernmost Caribbean island. Tell me what's going on in here. I see parrots. Well, yeah, that's parrots. A camel. It's, it's, it's from my last show. So they're like plasticine on plywood. I'm basically sculpting paintings. I'm using my hands and just like diving into like uh, colors and uh, crazy colors. Parrot became uh, a theme for me like a year ago when I was thinking of my solo show for Amazon Dors, which uh, was like this fall in September. I ended up with the parrot as a concept. I've been in Miami since uh, 2005. One layer is 
that I'm always trying to find similarities between my beloved native Iceland and Miami. I'm always like trying to find logical reasons why I am here and not there, because you couldn't find more different places. Reykjavik and, and Miami have absolutely nothing in common. One is cold, dark, Arctic basically, and the other one is, is tropical. So you find parrots in Iceland. Right. Of course they're domestic, of course they're pets. But you find also parrots in Florida, in Miami. And the strangest thing is that all parrots you see in Miami and in Florida, they're all immigrants. The native species died out in the 1890s. What is the camel doing here? The camel is actually from a, another show. It's a landmark in Miami. When I came first here, I got lost because every corner had a Walgreens and a gas station. And I didn't know which one it was, southeast or northwest, because it, uh, Miami is flat like a pancake. So uh, I come from an island, like a volcanic island. So every town has a mountain, every place has a hill or a valley. And so landscape is like part of my DNA. So coming here, to living on a completely flat delta was difficult for me. So I started to pick up man-made landmarks. And one of the landmarks was a rotating camel on the corner of 27th Avenue and 20th Street. And it sits on a pole, and it's still there. It sits on a pole and rotates slowly. It's a, probably an old camel commercial for the camel cigarettes, but now it's like a bakery. For some reason that really struck a nerve with me. I, I, I loved it. So I created that. I created my own camel and I have it on a rotating platform. And what about this painting of meat? One thing leads to another. I had a show in 2010 called Operation Beefeater. They are the, the keepers of the royal crown. And it had me in a beefeater costume in certain places, like it was a, a video of me beefeater eating beef and some photographs from on location from, from London. So part of that became like a beef. I took the eater out and just started focusing on the beef. And they are called beef eaters because they were paid in beef. Uh, when At times when that was like a rarity and a, and a luxury. That's actually like one of the job of the artist. Let go of logical thinking and rationality. Just go for something that is more magical than that. Miami-based artist Laura Marsh is originally from rural Pennsylvania. Her textile works include banners, weavings, and installations that reflect on social issues. Growing up among women who sew informs her tactile approach to creating art and environments. We talk inside her studio space. I have been in Miami for three years. I'm an artist, I'm a curator, I do programming. I think of myself as an artist who advocates for other artists. I love Miami because it is a very friendly community. If you have an idea, you can find support for it. I think of DV as a group of really tight-knit artist partners who want to sustain themselves and produce programming and exhibitions that are really visionary. I work in fabric and fiber. I mainly make banners that have feminist statements or social statements and also participatory sculpture that people can sit on. I've always believed that my work needs to be accessible, that touching the work is a good thing, that 
you don't have to be outside of the work to be critical of it. You can actually be a participant. I've seen your environments and entered them. The environments are about allowing the space for people to actually talk about issues within the arts and to decompress. Decompression is important for the work. This is very spare for you, this space. Well, we just started, really. I mean, we built our walls in our studios, and we, we painted them. And I am trying to look at previous fiber-based work and make flags. Which one do you want to describe right now? It's, it's called Dear America, My Dear. And I made this during the 2016 election, and it was about reflecting on class and how class in the U.S. is not mentioned often, except during political times, like elections. And I'm from a rural area. It's called Montrose, Pennsylvania. It's not an arts town. It's being heavily fracked for its resources and shale. And I grew up poor, and my neighbors were poor. And then being an artist... I would say that you're almost between classes. If you sell your work, you're selling your work to people who have more money than you, and you have to learn how to speak to them. This is a piece that sold, so I'm sending this to Louisville, Kentucky this week. And Congratulations. Really, thank you. I was really happy that basically the guy I'm selling it to, he's a lawyer, and he told me that he was having a lot of conversations, intense conversations with a friend about whether class matters and how it's spoken about in this country. So after I shared this story, he was like, I want to have this so that we can talk around it. And for me, that's when the work comes alive. It leaves my studio, it has a second life, and if it's part of dialogue, then it's successful and it, I can part with it and be happy that it's somewhere else. And this one actually has the word talk in it. So it's a small weaving. It's primarily pink and black, playing off of the stars and stripes of the US flag and also playing off of this period of darkness that a lot of people feel that they're in. And you know, when people like black out their face and their story on, on Facebook, thinking about those things that we've done to talk about political and also social frustrations that we have. So the first statement is, Dear America, I desire more inclusivity. And the response? My dear, it's time to talk about class. They're in dialogue with each other. I think of this as an open letter to specifically North America. So I'm asking in my letter for ways that North America can become more inclusive of people um, that are in class situations, immigrants, and recognizing difference. And then the bottom half is, it's a polite way of saying, I think there's a problem here. And I'm sort of thinking about this as though I was in a relationship with North America. Like, hey, you know, I'm trying to delicately tell you that I have more desires for my nation. And I know that might come across as being a little hard or heavy hitting, but it's really time to talk about class. If we don't do this, then we're going to experience, particularly in urban areas, there's a lot of tension between rich and poor, where our middle class is like bottoming out. So, you know, if we're in a class war constantly and people cannot decompress from it and even address that systemic poverty is a problem and it's like a disease and it's like it keeps people from moving forward, if people don't feel mobile, then they will feel naturally oppressed just by situationally. But I like how you have a shooting star in here, so there's hope. Yeah, there's hope. There's always hope. Born in Venezuela, artist Juan Pablo Garza now lives and works in Miami, 
He's an omnivorous collector, modifier, and arranger of small quotidian objects. Garza's exhibition, Arenas y Arenas y Arenas, takes up the largest gallery in DV's new space. The installation reveals his proclivity for repeating patterns and multiples. First, we find out why the artist has nailed rows and rows of real potatoes to the wall for his solo show. Then we visit his studio for a closer look at other organic and mass-produced forms that inspire his practice. I've been living here in Miami for the past four years. And yeah, I'm one of the shows that are opening with DV's opening, it's, it's my show. It's called Arenas y Arenas y Arenas. And it's going to be an installation show. I'm still putting it together, working on it. The show, it, in a way, talks about my relationship with, I guess, my immediate environment, but also these things that I surround myself with and transform and altered and put them together, seeing or looking for different ways of how they change each other just by their mere proximity. The show has to do a lot with, with that game, I guess. Some of the shapes I see repeated are eggs, and I see potatoes. Tell me what's going on over here. It's a series of potatoes. This is the first piece that I installed in the show. I kind of wanted to install it first because I wanted the potatoes to sprout as I was working. So in a way, they're like accompanying me. I've always had potatoes around. Potatoes kind of like remind me of the idea of the farmer, of the worker, of the day-to-day -day labor. I feel like they're charged with symbolism and different ways of reading what a potato, how the potato activates the space. And these potatoes are growing what we call eyes, and they have even leaves growing out yeah, of them. Sprouts, yeah, so they're growing, and they'll keep on growing until the show closes. And then we have these other shapes that are kind of like a representation of, of a potato, like a very brute representation of a potato. Collect a lot of things, don't you? Yeah. Well, that's... I see denture molds. Yeah, I, yeah. Body parts. There's a lot of body parts. There's dentures. You'll see fingers around, toes, and little birds. Yeah. Of course, the eggs, dog shoes. I've been collecting objects for a long, long time and producing work with the objects that I collect since 2012, I would say. And sometimes a lot of the objects that I collect are also my interest in, in them. It's also them kind of like pushing the boundaries of the work and open doors within my, my own process. So sometimes adding an object to the collection that I feel it's a little off what I usually collect, it's uh, part, of the, uh, part of the process. So I see doorknobs, cable. These are soaps. These are soaps. Yeah, these are. They're shaped like corals and... These are sculpted soaps. And this I did for a show in 2012. It was my first installation show. When I did that show, before actually moving all the objects into the gallery, I started exchanging emails with this friend of mine. It's like conversation about what the show was going to be. Every time he will send me an email, I will, as a way of thinking about what I was going to answer back to him, I will sculpt a soap, a mechanical process in a way, just a way of thinking. I like seeing the back story of what's on view in the gallery, Absolutely, the ingredients. Yeah. yeah. What I put out in galleries, it's a way of translating kind of like what happens within, within the studio. For this show, it was kind of strange for me because prior to the show, I had 
packed all of my things because I was moving from one studio to the other. So all my things were in boxes for like three, four months. And it was really hard for me to think and think about the show without having these things, these things around to, to play with and activate thought. From Venezuela, artist Luz Carabano is currently based in New York. Dimensions Variable invited her to present her enigmatic paintings in Miami for the first time. A dozen of her latest surrealist images line the walls of DV's smallest exhibition space. I'm primarily an oil painter, usually dealing with something that's somewhat tangible but placing it within this abstract field so that it's kind of in between these two worlds. Everything you'll be showing here is the same scale? Exactly. So they're usually pretty much small scale. I like the intimacy of it. It asks you to come up to the piece and it summons you in so that you're experiencing it in that almost religious way that you would if it was some kind of sacred object. So the painting is a sacred object? Yes, but also not. They're not so precious that they have to be, you know, in frames. And what is the name of this exhibition? So it is called Miyaki Nyaja. Neither here nor there. Yes. Yes. So it speaks again about space and about the space, not just in the abstraction, but also as an artist that you dwell in within the painting and your own reality and kind of going into those almost metaphysical spaces that you go into mentally as an artist and that you draw also from reality. So it's speaking about space in many different contexts. I'm curious about this one. Mm -hmm. So here we have a piece of this golden dark goat. It's based on this little tiny statue, and it is placed within this very bright, saturated, almost electric blue backdrop. And there's some kind of an incoherent shadow also appearing beneath it. And it's relatively small as well, five inches by seven inches. What's the story behind the figure? So this figure I saw at the Met Brewer, and I was kind of just compelled by the object. I thought it looked like it belonged both from another period. There was a very handmade aspect to it, but it changes a lot through the painting. It becomes something else distant from that object. So that also speaks about place, about the place where I saw it and the place where it leads me to, because it kind of goes through a transformation. What is the source? Who made this object? Or do you know some of the history of it? Um, I did know it initially, but I guess it kind of speaks to my process that, you know, I read about it and everything, but it kind of just leaves me and it becomes somewhat irrelevant by the end of the process because it is kind of recontextualized and so distant from that original source. Visual arts archivist Anita Sharma immigrated to the United States from India in 1982. Now based in Miami, she founded the new archive that she brings to Dimensions Variable. The Women's Artist Archive Miami, a.k.a. WAM, will be an open-source online platform that documents, preserves, and spotlights the work of local women artists. To celebrate the WAM launch, Sharma exhibits archival media, sketches, notes, video documentation, maquettes, catalogs, postcards, ephemera, and essays to represent the art history of Karen Rifas and Cara de Spain. 
I'm an independent archivist um, and a consultant. Uh, I've been working in the stewardship of art collections and archival research for, for over uh, 20 years now. What compelled you to join this group of makers? You are a maker too. I know you had a practice to do with cooking. My practice straddles two worlds. I'm a chef and I have a South Indian food concept which is dedicated to preserving my family recipes and I've been doing a tiffin service in Miami for over five years where I basically bring my family recipes to certain neighborhoods in Miami and on top of that, in terms of my collaboration with DV, uh, Francis and Leyden asked me to house my, my archive project here and to be a collaborator. So the WAM project, which stands for Women Artists Archive Miami project, will be housed at Dimensions Variable from now on. So I'm very grateful to them for giving me that opportunity to house my research here. I know you received a grant to support this work. Yes, last year I received um, a Wavemaker grant, a research and development grant to further my research. And my research actually is a culmination of over 10 years worth of research with artist archives, essentially. The impetus for the work you know, has really been to ask the question of who's being recorded in history and how do we create peripheral access points to, to memory institutions and to public history institutions that are actually based within a community infrastructure. What media are you archiving? It will really be everything. The long-term goal is to create a digital platform so that artists can actually upload material in a participatory format so they can upload anything really relating to their own artist archives to a digital format and that material, they will always retain copyright to that material. This will be a post-custodial archive platform in the sense that it will not be proprietary. I will not own anything. I will just be an archivist sort of in terms of managing the archival material, but all of the archival ephemera material will remain with the creator. So it will really be anything and everything that artists would like to share with the archive. So the physical objects will remain in the possession of the Absolutely. artist and the archive, the digital archive will be online. Yes. Someone listening to this might want to know how do I become part of this archive? How do I qualify? Well, there are no rules and restrictions. Uh, right now, I'm very much in the research phase, but I'm hoping by next year to create an infrastructure whereby I will be actually going out into the community and asking people to participate in the program. And I will create a participatory platform whereby artists can just start uploading material. And there will be workshops and there will be educational programming that will actually instruct artists on how to participate in the programming. So the, the archive is, is accessible to everyone. That's really the main mission of the, of the archive platform. This sort of a radical community archival platform really differs from the more mainstream archival institutions that are custodial in nature. So in that one sense, it's going to be you know, very free. Really the idea ultimately is to create online archival narratives for a lot of these artists, especially women artists, because it is an archival platform dedicated to women artists and female identifying artists. And so it's really important for me to be able to give a platform to artists who don't actually also have access to mainstream art institutions. And so that's like one of the founding principles really of the organization. To tell some untold stories. Absolutely. And I think that's important. I think that's really the way that archives are moving, especially grassroots participatory archives are moving in that direction. So I think it's important to create these peripheral sites of engagement for memory institutions in particular need to be embedded within the society because I do think that mainstream archival repositories, they are, they are performing a very important function, but they are not as accessible as I think a community archive platform is. 
This is the Fresh Art International Podcast. I'm Kathy Bird. In Miami's Little Haiti Cultural District, where we explore a new art space known as Dimensions Variable, we capture the voices of creatives leading the way in local collaborative placemaking. We meet New York-based artist Luz Carabano, the first guest exhibitor in DV's new home. And we explore the work of DV's team. New collaborators Juan Pablo Garza, Laura Marsh, Anita Sharma, and Magnus Sigurdsson, together with co-founders Leiden Rodriguez Casanova and Francis Trombley. These cultural producers aim to synergize exhibitions, art making, and education around contemporary art. In their new gathering place for art and culture, they intend to spark a local dialogue about collective creativity as a way of life. Visit our website to learn more and hear other conversations from the world of contemporary art and culture. Please take a few minutes to review Fresh Art International on Apple Podcasts. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, Tempest Projects, Artists in Residence in Everglades, and listeners like you make this oral history project possible. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button to encourage our storytelling. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk. Thank you.